Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Last Days of the Coliseum, a 2010 documentary that charts the rise and fall of the New Haven Veterans Memorial Coliseum, a steel and concrete behemoth of a stadium that stood for over 30 years just south of the New Haven Green, alongside the Oak Street Connector. I'll be joined by writer-director Rich Hanley for a discussion of this monumental building and its legacy, of the story behind the documentary, and some challenges and benefits of making movies in and about New Haven. My guest today, Rich Hanley, is an award-winning filmmaker who has made a number of historical documentaries about Connecticut, including Remember When and a three-part series on Connecticut during World War II. He's an associate professor of journalism at Quinnipiac University, and most pertinent for today's show, he is the writer and director of the 2010 documentary, Last Days of the Coliseum. Rich, welcome to Deep Focus. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Okay, so I'd love to, just for people who haven't seen the movie, and just to kick off, if you could tell me in your own words, what is Last Days of the Coliseum about? Well, Last Days of the Coliseum is a, it's a two-hour documentary about uh, a building that many uh, members in this area uh, of the baby boom generation called home. It was where their cultural lives were expressed in terms of rock and roll, hockey, wrestling, children's shows, and any other sort of middle-class entertainment that flowed through New Haven in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And this movie, although its focus is on the Coliseum itself, the building that stood at the the corner of State and George, uh, south of the Green, it takes a slightly uh, larger or wider perspective on that area of New Haven, on the different sporting and entertainment events that took place within the Coliseum, uh, what's the, the larger story or the larger history that you were covering in this yeah, movie? It represents what uh, the mayor at the time when it was planned, Richard Lee, you know, saw as the capstone of a move to keep New Haven relevant for the uh, hundreds of thousands of people in the area who were living in suburban areas. He needed a way to get them to come to his revitalized downtown. He had built the Chapel Square Mall, which had modest success, um, and he, they needed a place where they could attract people uh, from out of town to come, spend some time in New Haven, spend some money, and then leave. The Coliseum uh, was designed to replace the privately owned New Haven Arena, which was owned by the Podoloff family um, for many, many years, since 1927. And it was designed to attract a, you know, a top-flight minor league hockey team, top-flight musical acts, to make New Haven culturally relevant, to draw the families into town, and to make New Haven uh, vibrant in terms of nightlife and as a destination uh, for its rapidly suburbanized neighbors. I think for some residents of New Haven in the early 21st century to hear that there were a number of different hockey stadiums alone in New Haven, let alone you know venues that held pretty major concerts or brought the circus through town or had monster truck rallies or you know all the different events that these stadiums held, just to hear that there were uh, at least three different hockey arenas, well, actually four hockey arenas if we consider um, Ingalls Rink, uh, Yale's right. Hockey Stadium, in downtown New Haven over the past 100 years. And that's kind of where your story, well, if, your story, if the prologue of this movie uh, is... The, also the end, the kind of reflecting upon the demolition of the Coliseum, the actual start is with the Center Freeze Arena, and then it moves over to the arena in New Haven. Could you give me and the listeners a bit of background on those two spaces? What, what were they? What role did they serve in downtown New Haven's kind of cultural and sports life in the early 20th century? Hockey became uh, a popular sport at Yale in the late 19th century, and Yale fielded a pretty good team. 
Uh, but they really had no place to play with artificial ice. They had to play home games, say, at St. Nicholas Arena in New York, uh, which was a enclosed arena with artificial ice. Uh, they played out outdoors on Davis Pond, which is just north of New Haven, New Haven-Hamden line. Uh, so the Center Freeze Arena on Grove Street was part of an ice plant. And so they, the owner of the Center Freeze Company uh, felt that it would be a good place for Yale to play hockey, but also bring in various other ice shows as the the need for entertainment, uh, you know, grew. Uh, this was just before the, the heyday of the movie theater. Uh, so if you had an indoor ice rink, guaranteed ice meant you could get people to come watch the games and whatnot. So the Center Freeze Arena, uh, you know, emerged as one of the first artificial ice arenas in the United States, and it was built in a very in a very much a classy fashion. It was very much saw, uh, seen as a class um, place. It, figure skating championships in the United States were held there and so on and so forth. But it proved to be uh, a victim, you know, of World War One. It was just impossible to operate it during the war. Where was that building located? In downtown that was on Grove Street. Oh, that was on Grove as well, which is where the New Haven Arena was New Haven Arena was. Yeah, and it reopened after the war. um and it had hockey. Uh, again, Yale played there. It had an amateur, amateur teams as well. as Some semi-pro teams play there. Uh, but it, it caught fire, uh, burned to the ground, because it was right next to the train tracks at the time, which is the canal line ran through there. It, it, um, so their plan was to let's rebuild it. And that's where the New Haven Arena comes in on the same same plot of land. Uh, and, and that, uh, the Portaloff family came in and took over construction in 1926, and it opened in 1927, principally for Yale hockey. But it also uh, turned out to be the, the place for a professional hockey's debut in New Haven. Uh, and later, the American Hockey League was founded in 1936. And New Haven was one of the original franchises uh, for a league that still exists. This is, is this the American Hockey League or the Eastern Hockey League? Uh, American know? Hockey League, Got yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it was um, uh, you know, you know, a key development in the history of hockey in New Haven and sort of the foundation and for the generational fan base um, that that turned out to love the sport and you know made New Haven in its own way uh, a sort of hockey town you know in winter because you know, the arena was there Yale would play there this American Hockey League team uh, would also play there so it became the, the thing to do would be to watch hockey in the winter. I know that we're still uh, kind of in the prologue to the Coliseum. We're talking about the buildings and the hockey arenas that uh, came before the Coliseum and kind of led up to it. But just staying with those two buildings for a second more, the center freeze and the arena, uh, you know, the Coliseum went out with a big bang and quite recently. I mean, this is a building that a lot of people uh, have uh, personal attachments to and memories uh, of uh, people still living in New Haven today. But these buildings are a, a bit more distant in New Haven's historical memory but also there, you know, if you go down to uh, George Street, you'll see the big empty lot where the New Haven Coliseum was. It's difficult for me to picture where these two arenas were in downtown because there are buildings there now. In Gro- I mean, Grove has plenty of buildings, you know, populating its various plots. Uh, I, I wonder, as a, as a filmmaker and as a journalist, uh, what was it like uh, bringing back the stories of these two places that came before the Coliseum, either finding the historical material or talking with people. What was that process like? Oh, that was, that was hard because there's no file in any archive center freeze arena. I, I, you know, I basically stumbled upon it doing research, looking at old newspapers. And I, I, I noticed that 
there's this place called the Center Freeze Arena. And that's, that's when you start digging deeper and deeper. I went into engineering journals at the time to find see if there are any images. <laughs> and I found one you know, that I could scan in and, and kind of fix up with Photoshop to give it a, a broadcastable quality. Uh, but these old engineering journals really gave me insight into the construction process. Um, and one of those journals happened to be published by the you know, Sheffield School of Engineering at Yale um, you know, as a study in how this arena came to be and what were the underlying technologies of making artificial ice. Um, and I found there during, during the interviews with folks for the, uh, for the uh, film that people had never heard of it. It had already evaporated from living memory, um, you know, anything before the New Haven Arena. There was no sense that hockey had established itself in the late 19th century New Haven, um, that you had this technologically advanced indoor artificial ice arena, you know, on Grove Street, you know, before the New Haven Arena. Um, and that that's where the seeds of New Haven's hockey um, uh, love affair really, really were planted, you know, in, in that original arena. And I was, you know, quite frankly surprised myself um, to understand that I also found that Yale had attempted to build uh, an indoor ice rink, but it wasn't artificial ice. It was, it was real ice, and that doesn't really work out that well because <laughs> you need real cold uh, for real ice. Now, do you feel like you're, if the memory of the center freeze arena has somewhat quickly dissipated and is a bit more difficult to uncover. Do you feel like the memory of the New Haven arena is a bit more present or it was a bit easier to track down people with memories of the blades, the hockey team with memories of uh, seeing Elton John perform there or whoever it may right. be. Um, what, what was your experience like thinking about and documenting the New Haven arena? Well, it was, it was interesting that uh, the Portaloff family still lives around here, you know, and, you know, I was able to talk to the son of of of, of the portal, of Nate Podoloff, and uh, what and get access to the family archives. Um, and you have people who have living memories of going to New Haven Blades games, including myself. I went to grammar school in New Haven um, at St. Boniface School, which no longer exists, on Audubon Street, and we used to uh, sneak out at recess to go to the arena to catch pucks during Blades practices and and run out of there before the team would chase us out, you know, would leave with pucks that they had flipped into the stands. Uh, I still have one of those pucks. And um, so, I, you know, I personally had memories of, of the arena skating there, playing hockey there. Um, and a lot of people um, in this area um, played peewee hockey. Uh, New Haven Arena was the site of the first peewee hockey league in the United States. Um, and it was a very, very popular league for, for many, many years. So there were a lot of, uh, you know, kids who grew up at the arena playing hockey. And some of the older, their older uh, siblings, for example, would remember the concerts, uh, going there to see the Doors, uh, and some of the other shows, like mentioned, you know, Elton John, um, and so on and so forth. Some of the rock and roll reviews, um, and that during that process, I stumbled upon New Haven's you know, sort of troubled history of rock and roll. I, I didn't understand that, you know, going in, but and that's why the show goes deep into history. The history is so fascinating that this is a city that did not want rock and roll, built the Coliseum that survived because of rock and roll. I think that's a nice transition to the building that is at the center of this movie, which is the New Haven Coliseum itself. As you said, you know, we've been talking a bit about hockey and the city's history with hockey and the Coliseum was, I mean, as I don't know if it was, do you think it was first and foremost in people, you know, New Haven residents imagination as a home for the New Haven Nighthawks, or did it really depend on, who you asked was it depended on who you asked it was a very very much a um you know rock and roll had its own 
a segment of fans. Hockey had its own segment of fans. Now there would be, of course, some some blurring of that line. You know, people go to hockey, go to an occasional show, but rock and roll fans tended to go to a lot of shows, and the hockey uh, fans tended to go to a lot of hockey games that gave them little time to do anything else. And then the the wedge issue was wrestling. Because wrestling attracted both the rock and rollers and the hockey fans because rock and roll and hockey, you know, both have characteristics of professional wrestling. So professional wrestling was the third st- piece of the triad that made the Coliseum go. I think one one of the most fun parts of watching this movie for me and thought provoking parts was uh, how you want you describe. I think you call it the holy trinity of middle class spectacle entertainment. It's hockey wrestling and rock and roll in the 70s and 80s as three things that they may have their separate audiences, but there are points of intersection, whether it be section was it 14, the jungle that kind of brought the heavy metal attitude and and headbanging and aggressiveness to the the hockey stands. Not that hockey is lacking in in that level of um, machismo, but I I love the the way that you you weave the different kind of strands of entertainment that the Coliseum survived on and thrived on uh, and talked about how they were all in some way representative of the baby boomer generation. So tell, tell me a bit about uh, how, how do the baby boomers figure into this story? This, the story really is about the rise and fall of the baby boomers with the Coliseum as a metaphor, you know, for, for what they stood for, you know, which was, you know, just the rock and roll, um, hockey, wrestling, but just the idea that you could get in your car, you know, and go to a place with your friends, you know, without supervision of your parents, and kind of grow up there over the years. I mean, you might have gone there first to see a family show, maybe a children ice capades or something, but then you got to be fourteen or fifteen, you're able to maybe with an older sibling get to see a rock and roll concert. Then you went when you learned how to drive on your own um, to a rock and roll show. And then you had your own, the fans had basically a residency there for years because so many acts, you know, came through New Haven. So it became a reflection of baby boomer culture, you know, not only in New Haven, but in the, in the wider United States. Because the, the bands would play in Boston, Providence, Springfield, New Haven, Hartford. They'd all, you know, come through New Haven. Look at some of the old T-shirts and that, that have the schedules printed on them. There's New Haven right in the heart of that. And so as these bands made their way around the United States, they'd stop in New Haven and, and New Haven's, uh, the New Haven areas, you know, baby boomers and particularly the middle-class audience, white suburban kids would come in and, you know, raise hell at these shows. They would just go, they would love it. And then they'd wait for another show to come in. And there were so many acts touring uh, in the seventies and eighties that you could literally go to two or three shows a week. Many of the rock and roll fans did saw some really, really great acts over the, over the years. Can you tell me about, you've mentioned uh, as a grade school student going to the arena and trying to pick up pucks, um, I believe you you covered some events at the uh, Coliseum as a reporter when you were a student at UNH. I tell, did, Tell yeah. me about some, some of your experiences I did. I, was, I went to the University of New Haven and, and it was a features editor of the college newspaper. Uh, and I had my introduction to backstage rock and roll life, you know, through that uh, mechanism. Uh, Jim Koplick, uh, the great promoter, um, of, of that era, one of the great treasures of Connecticut music and Connecticut cultural history, um, was very you know kind to college uh, media. He would you know say, okay, I'll get you on the guest list, and it, he got got me on the guest list for every show. So I was able to you know leave campus and go go to shows and just talk to rock and roll 
rock and rollers and just look at their retinue and, you know, have a real eye-opening experience of what they did backstage and, you know, what they what they were doing legally and what they were doing illegally. Uh, but I also got a chance to observe the audience from that perspective. And I did see, uh, you know, just how much joy was in the, uh, you know, the faces of the audience. And there is a little piece in the, in the documentary where I just used stills of the audience uh, to reflect that moment. Uh, just the joy that, wow, I can't believe we're seeing this band. I can't believe this band is in this town that, you know, we live next door to or down, right down the street from where I grew up. Um, and, and I think there was this brush with greatness um, in play uh, where the world came to New Haven. And I think that meant a lot to a lot of people. At least that's what I observed from observing, of their, observing the fans in my role as a college writer covering uh, rock and roll, which is a pretty good way to, to learn the trade. One of the recurring kind of lines or ideas in this movie is that the Coliseum represented uh, the baby boomer generation's shift from protest to pleasure. Yeah. That this was a, uh, a generation that grew up you know, on the New Haven Green, 1968, uh, 1970, protesting the um, the Black Panther trials, you know, demanding the the release of Erica Huggins and, and all the rest. And this was a, a generation that the generation in power, the Richard C. Lees of the world, were afraid would, um, would almost, it, you know, push past the boundaries of decorum and would almost explode in the streets of uh, with with violence, but almost the the explosion was more of pleasure. I mean, this the all of that energy was kind of channeled into uh, the. Um, I mean, the the narrative of the baby boomer generation, I think, has not necessarily been a kind one in the way that we reflect upon the um, the trajectory of their impact upon uh, kind of bettering various social, cultural, political ills that still plague uh, our country. And I wonder, as someone you know, explicitly looking at the Coliseum as a symbol and as an actual place of meeting for baby boomers, uh, and you thinking about that trajectory of protest to pleasure, is this one primarily of nostalgia? Is it a critical one? Is it a, you know, are you condemning it? Or is it something just reflecting upon this is what happened in your eyes and your peers' Oh, it's eyes? a critical assessment. You know, and I, I write in the script that they, you know, traded the mud of Woodstock for air-conditioned cushioned seats to the Coliseum. And, you know, and uh, after that, you know, the, the Black Panther demonstrations in New Haven on May Day in 1970. A year later, the Green's empty. You know, a year later, the Coliseum opened. Where are the protesters? You know, where, you know, really, where are the hippies? You know, where, you know, where's that peace, love, and happiness? Well, that was traded in. That was traded in for, you know, sex, lo- you know, and drugs and rock and roll, this sort of hedonistic approach to life, um, you know, which if you look at the time, you know, the, you know, the, the boomers had, a, you know, protested Vietnam. There's, you know, racism and, and all, all these other things. And there was a sense of exhaustion, I think, in the early 70s. And that exhaustion led to this uh, sort of, uh, you know, feeling that, hey, let's just, let's just have fun. Mm. Let's just let it go. Let's just have fun. Let's go and see a show. Let's see rock and roll. And you see rock and roll change. You see it becoming more commercial, more corporate. You see a lot, a lot of compromises being made that were not made earlier. Uh, and, and one of the more ironic points is that, as you said, time New Haven was scared out of its mind as an official uh, entity, as an official government, that those demonstrations would spill over into the Coliseum and would 
contaminate the Coliseum, which was designed for family. So it's so much so that the mayor, it was first Lee and then it opened under actually Bart Guida, banned the words rock and roll. You couldn't use the word rock in your poster. You had to say pops concert. The Beach Boys in concert, a pops concert. You couldn't use rock and roll. They're afraid of what it would represent or what it would attract. And they had nothing to worry about. It would just attract uh, baby boomers with a, a few dollars to spend on tickets uh, who just wanted to smoke pot and and do so publicly and and, uh, and listen to rock and roll music. I think that Toads on Broadway uh, is kind of a dump. <laughs> but one thing I so appreciate about that venue is that they are the last business on that block in that whole district that is not owned by Yale University. And God bless them, they try to throw it in the university's face every single chance they can. I mean, they have people spilling out into that alley on campus, you know, teenagers who probably are doing things that teenagers are not legally allowed to do. And they have the big tour buses taking up all of uh, York Street and Toad's really stands in defiance of the uh, kind of corporate sanitization that Yale, for better or worse, is looking to push upon the various commercial entities on Broadway. That's, yeah, and that's, that's, you're right. Absolutely. I, I wonder if you see, I mean, is this, you talk a lot about the um, inheritance of the Puritan spirit in New Haven and, and this, the fear of, um, you know, of disorder trumping order. And it sounds like a lot of that was in play with the New Haven Arena, with the Coliseum. Do you, do you see that still happening today? Oh, yeah. Is this, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a major subtext of the film. I mean, this, this, you know, New Haven is a puritanical vibe. It's, it stretches from the opening to the end because you know, it's present, and it's present today. Uh, you know, there's fear of the other. There's fear of, you know, there's fear that somewhere, some, somewhere someone may be having fun, as someone once said. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's been, you know, braided into the history of New Haven since, you know, the nine squares were founded. So uh, I think that um, Toad's Place does represent, the, you know, the last redoubt of the spirit of rock and roll and the spirit of rebellion and the spirit of what could have been, you know, when people would be able to get together listening to all kinds of different music and, 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 the, and the spirit in which it was created. You know, and and I, it, is the, it is the last the last space on... You know, and looking over the, thinking about the history of rock and roll in New Haven, it's pretty much it. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's Cafe Nine has a certain spirit to it, certainly. There's no disrespect to any of the other clubs as they come, come and go. And the outer space. And the outer Hampton space, yeah. Really it's certainly, you know, the, the heart of rock and roll, is, as the song goes, certainly beats in New Haven. There's certainly a current here that wants to keep it alive, and we're all grateful for that and happy that the next generation is taking good care of that spirit. Uh, but Toads is, represents, I think, uh, it's something that has survived. It has this survivor sensibility to it uh, that I that I respect and appreciate. Well, you are listening to WNHH LP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Tom Breen, host of Deep Focus, and I'm talking with today's guest, writer, director, uh, professor Rich Hanley from Quinnipiac University, and we're talking about his 2010 documentary, Last Days of the Coliseum. So uh, I'd like to transition to the part of the Coliseum that actually most interests me, and I think is maybe most relevant to New Haven today, which is that intersection of mid-century architecture, urban renewal, and that big empty parking lot that <laughs> that sits that sits down, you know, the overflow parking lot for the Union Station um, that sits by the Route 34 connector. So this, we've talked about hockey, we've talked about rock and roll, and the various intersections of kind of baby boomer protests to pleasure culture. 
what role did the Coliseum play in New Haven's history of urban renewal and the physical transformation of downtown? It was really the last piece of, you know, Mayor Richard Lee's redevelopment vision, um, you know, that started in the 1950s when he became mayor. Um, it was the capstone to it. And, and unfortunately, it ran into the headwinds of financial trouble. Uh, it also, there was also, uh, I think I counted 19 separate labor strikes that took place during the building's construction, which delayed its opening, which increased its cost, and New Haven was running out of money. So the building, in fact, was designed you know, by the great architect Kevin Roach as this sort of you know, modernist example of high art. New, I mean, Lee wanted the top architects to practice in New Haven. He, he didn't want bland corporate buildings. He wanted signature buildings that the Coliseum was supposed to um, stand as one, and Roach designed it as such, but it was never completed. Um, it was supposed to be sheathed, um, uh, at least the parking garage was supposed to be sheathed in translucent panels, that, which would have lightened the, um, the girders a little bit, gave it a, a sense of elevation and lift at night. Uh, the entrance was supposed to be um, clad in, in glass, glass walls with the exhibition space. And that would have lightened up the front of the building. Instead of deadening it, it would have lightened it up. But the exhibition hall uh, with glass walls was never built. The translucent panels were never installed. The building was basically opened as is, well short of the original designs that Roach had in mind as a signature architectural monument at the, what he saw as the gateway to New Haven. So you have the Knights of Columbus Tower, you know, which with its verticality, you know, thrusting up to the sky. Also designed by Roach. Also designed by Roach. And you had the horizontal Coliseum kind of anchoring that verticality there and, and right coming into New Haven. So it acted as sort of like a gateway into New Haven. Uh, but Roach's best designs were never realized. Uh, the building was flawed from the start, you know, by the design of putting the, he had no choice but to put the garage on the roof because there was only so much space. He had no place to put the cars. So they just put the cars as part of the roof, you know, above ground. And that in turn defeated the urban renewal process. That's, that's, you know, it just drips with ironies like this. This capstone designed to get people in New Haven actually kept people from entering New Haven in the sense that they would drive in off the Oak Street Connector, Route 34, go up the Helix ramps to the garage, take an escalator down on the Coliseum, consume rock and roll, wrestling or hockey or family show, take the escalator up, get in their cars, go down the Helix, get it back on the freeway, and off they go to the suburban town. So they never actually set foot in New Haven. They never actually stayed any length of time here, which defeated the purpose. And interestingly, in the, in the, in the record, uh, Kevin Roach's papers, he warned that this would happen in the mid-60s. He told Lee, according to a document uh, you know, that I have, that if you don't put other things around the Coliseum, it'll be a dead zone most of the time. Because there's no way you can have 365 concerts, hockey games, and so on. And it turned out to be true. So during you know the movie doesn't just cite the papers of Kevin Roach. He is one of the featured people being interviewed. He is on camera. He's talking about his history with Richard C. Lee, his history designing the Coliseum, his frustrations, although delivered quite calmly, about the underfunding of the uh, Coliseum's construction. Paul Bass, the editor of The Independent, wrote a, a review of Last Day's Coliseum when it came out in 2010. And the focus of his article 
was on Roach, on Roach as an interviewee in this movie, and how, I'm not sure if this is a word, but how unpenitent he was, how he seemed, you know, quite confident that the ideals were pure, the execution maybe wasn't perfect, but this is what happens with great ideas in the history of architecture. You know, at the, at the very end of the movie, he says, this is, this, this is evidence of the evolution of civilization, right? Some these buildings decay, they go away, and we, we try new projects. As someone you were interviewing for this movie, what was the, was, was that an accurate gauge of his attitude? What was it like talking with him about this project that so many people have so many different feelings about? Yeah, you know, I mean, Paul hit it right on the head. It was, um, it was an interview that seemed marked by, on one hand, a defiant tone, uh, along with an acknowledgement that it didn't work. You know, he, he kind of walked that line between those two points, but said that is the, that's the nature of civilization, that's the nature of architecture. Uh, there was, so he eventually came to acceptance. But I can assure you he was not happy uh, about the way the city treated him, the way the city treated the building, and the way the city uh, so cavalierly, according to him, didn't try to fix the building again. And, and then if, you know, former mayor John DeStefano's in the film and, you know, he explains why it just costs too much money. I mean, it thing cost 23 million to build. It would cost another 23, at least million to fix. And it was, was it worth it? And um, there was a, a good deal of conf- conversation at the time that it should be, you know, architectural heritage needs to be saved and all this other stuff. But that argument would not win the day. Another featured interviewee in the movie is Douglas Ray, who's a professor at Yale and who wrote a great book about New Haven's architectural history and just the history of urban planning in the city called City Urbanism at its End. And I was flipping through the one of the chapters on Richard C. Lee yesterday, and I've got a, a very short quote from that that I want to run by you. And he's, he's talking about the challenges of Richard C. Lee's time, the many failures of his administration, but ultimately he ends on quite a conciliatory, if not praising tone. He says, no 20th century mayor of New Haven and few in America came close to Lee in personal vision, in quality of appointed staff, or in ability to articulate issues for just about any imaginable audience. Few, if any, dared to dream of attempting as much as Lee actually accomplished. You know, we were talking about how the baby boomer generation, the narrative around the, the baby boomers, I don't think has lived up too well to today, you know, to younger generations who think about the the excess and maybe the hedonism and the lost opportunities. And I think that Richard Sully also, for a lot of New Haveners, those who know about him and think about him, his legacy does not stand up well, I think, on a lot of fronts because of the way that these big urban renewal projects like the Oak Street Connector, like the New Haven Coliseum, completely separated neighborhoods, the hill from downtown, most infamously. Uh, when you, you know, when you're th- thinking about this project and when you were putting the movie together, um, where where do you come out on the Lee administration and the whole you know the model city and its uh, its legacy in 21st century New Haven? You know, Lee, Lee was a reflection of his time. It was of mega projects um, that the way you renewed cities would to, to basically destroy them and rebuild them with concrete. That was the attitude at the time. You know, it was a, you know again it's some sort of um, approach. Uh, which meant that if you eliminated the old, the new would automatically emerge, and the new would naturally be better than the old. And as we know now, that that was that's not the case. But that was the prevailing attitude, not only in in New Haven but elsewhere. Lee just knew 
how to maneuver the federal bureaucracy in a way to get money to make it happen in an extraordinary way in New Haven. But his, you know, his legacy is now um, being dismantled. Route 34 is being buried and, you know, removed to try to connect the city. Coliseum is now a parking lot. Um, a lot of you know, his, his plans were to so much of the time that as soon as that time passed, they, they were clearly dated and it was time to almost revert um, uh, back, you know, to a period of time. And when New Haven was a, a bunch of neighborhoods knitted together um, with their own, their own personal identities, their own identities that, that made sense to the town, that made sense to people who lived here um, instead of, you know, freeways. Because all the freeway did was help to destroy New Haven because it made it easier for people to get the heck, heck out and just come in, take advantage of it without paying any taxes and getting out again, <laughs> you know? So, so you know, it, it, his administration has to be one considered, you know, obviously a failure because it were not a failure that things wouldn't be being undone. They wouldn't be undergoing being undone. But as, as you know, Professor Red said, he is remembered as someone who tried. Um, and there are lessons in that, that it's not enough to try. And you need to, to be a little more thoughtful uh, and less blunt um, when it comes to removing people from their homes, uh, because new does not necessarily mean better. And new does not necessarily mean you're solving the problem you seek to address. The This movie, again, one, one of the things I so appreciate about it was how it takes this one architectural monument and it, it pulls out. It looks at what this represents as a symbol for New Haven in mid-century America and the various generations that filtered through it. And uh, one thing I'm interested to talk with you about is how the Coliseum, if at all, reflected or played into race relations in this city. Uh, there are very few people of color interviewed in the movie. We were talking earlier today. Uh, one of them is, uh, one of the women is Michelle Turner, who has a, a show on WNHH called The Show every Tuesday. And she talks about her experience seeing Earth, Wind, and Fire. And you also talk about how the Harlem Globetrotters came through town. And it was you know, talking earlier today about how he was talking with Joe Ugly and he had memories of, you know, com- coming with, with his friends from New Hallville and other friends from the Hill to events at the Coliseum. But, you know, we know looking back on this time of urban renewal, it wasn't arbitrary about who was necessarily fleeing to the suburbs and who was benefiting economically from it. It was often, you know, middle class and upper class white people who were fleeing the city and who were helping kind of divest it of the funds that kind of left a lot of minority communities, uh, if, at least their neighborhoods kind of strangled and, and underfunded. Do, do When you think about Coliseum, do you think about race in New Haven at all? Or was this more about class or entertainment or something? Well, no, unrelated? I think race is a critical a piece of it because it was designed, the Coliseum was designed to get, to reverse white flight, at least for, you know, one night at a time, you know, just to get those uh, folks who moved to the suburbs into New Haven to get them to spend money. That's, that's what it was all about. Um, I mean, the acts, there, there was a diverse acts, you know, book, New Haven, in the rock and roll business, you're interested in, in, in selling tickets. But if you look at the, um, you know, the, uh, the core acts, the rock and roll, heavy metal acts that were most popular at the Coliseum, it would reflect the sensibilities of the suburban rock and roll fan. These are the Van Halen, the, Van the Judas Halen, Priest. Def the Def Leppard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that sort of band, you know, hair band, um, you know, you know, more so, uh, you know, than I know, than say R and B acts, 
Um, you know, although you had hip hop shows there, uh, you, you did have, you know, a diversity of concerts within that. If you total it about, it's, it's a, it's a fraction of the shows, um, that, um, that took place there. And in terms of sports, you know, hockey is a, is largely a white sport with largely a white audience. And so if you put the, you know, two and two together, you see that it was its impact was to, you know, serve to reverse white flight, at least for the entertainment dollar. And we know it didn't work. I'm not sure how closely you watch that space now. I mean, in 2016, but I, I think that um, the current status is that a Canadian company called Live, Work, Learn, Play has contracted with the city to build out this kind of $400 million mini city of um, kind of mixed income apartments and various commercial spaces and a public square. And, you know, it's, it, it's great, but I look forward to it actually being there. You know, it's difficult to imagine it actually happening. But I wonder, you know, in 2016, reflecting on both this movie from 2010, which you worked on for, I believe, five years? Five years. Uh, and also the Coliseum that stood there for 30 some odd years. Uh, how do you, how do you feel about that space? How do you feel about the legacy of the Coliseum in, in 2016 New Haven? No, it's, 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 it's disappointing that that space hasn't been um, developed yet for apartments and shops and stuff to, to liven up that part of town. I mean, it is a, a key part of the city. It's at the gateway I mean, you know, to the city. And, um, I know the parking lot's useful, but it's not the best use of that space. The best use of the space is space that allows people to gather and live, love, um, talk, pray, you know, just be themselves. And uh, which is in many ways what the Coliseum, you know, could have been. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. Would hold, that was hold, one of my favorites. You know what I mean? The so, mass baptisms. Yeah, and, maps, and, and, yeah. So you, you think about it. Well, the Coliseum did you know, fulfill that role. Now that role can be fulfilled by people who actually not just visit, but people who live there. And because of that, it'd be a much more meaningful role. As people put down roots in the town. Uh, this is a diverse city, that which requires um, a response you know, to housing and other issues by people who live here. And to have people actually stay here and to create their own music and their own vibe and their own communities in that space, uh, you know, you know, would certainly be uh, something I, I, uh, I pray for and I, I certainly look forward to when it happens. You're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM. And I'm talking with Rich Hanley about his 2010 documentary, Last Days at the Coliseum. Uh, as we kind of wind down the interview, Rich, I'd love to take a step back and talk a bit about your career as a filmmaker. Maybe not every, I know that you've made a lot of movies, and so I'd love to have a different episode dedicated to each one, but thinking about your time making Last Days of the Coliseum, um, how did your, where, where is this in your career as a filmmaker, and also as you were putting this movie together, uh, I mean, what do you generally think makes for a compelling historical documentary, a compelling documentary about New Haven, about Connecticut? As someone who's made so many, um, what what kind of craft and experience do you bring to this project and then take out of it? I, I think the Coliseum film really was, you know, in, in my view, the, the one that brought the most interest to me because it spoke to larger, more epic 
sensibilities. The bill, it wasn't just, I mean, John Updike once wrote in a review in the New Yorker many years ago, you know, buildings have a value, you know, beyond the baldly utilitarian. And I, and I took that approach to this, to this film saying, this was not just a building. That's why I didn't want to make it nostalgia and make it just a list of things that happened. That would not have done the story justice, the story of New Haven justice at all. You know, you had to get to the Puritan past. You had to get to fears over black kids and white kids dancing together. You had to get into that, that sort of uh, hidden part of New Haven that folks would like to forget. And, but, under, but also understand that the building represented an entire generation that culturally grew up there. That this is where they, a lot of firsts happened at this building for that, for a, a, a significant section of that, that demographic at least. So it was clear during the research that this film was going to be bigger than a one-off tale of the flood of 55 or something. That this meant more than just the building. And those are the, those are the films I think that people like to, to make the most. Because you see it when you do it, and you got to do primary research. You can't just go out and interview people. What you do you got to go out and get in the libraries and, and try to find a, the larger meaning. If you can't find a larger meaning, that's probably not a good story. The building doesn't, or if your story doesn't represent something larger than itself, well, that's hard reason for people to give up their time to watch your, your work. You know, it, it's got to be larger than, than the singularity. So uh, when I look for stories, I, I know I look for things that speak to wider issues that can be told through a singular or, a, or an anecdote or something like that but that express larger issues um, in more meaningful ways than people might not originally know. Like folks were surprised at this documentary. They really thought it was just going to be a list of things that happened. Like, well, that's a nine minute show. They played, they played, they played done, blow it up. I said, this it's, it's more than that. And, and the, the most common remark was I didn't know. And as a filmmaker, when you get responses from the audience that say stuff like that, I didn't know. And you know, you've been successful. I heard a lot, a lot of I didn't know that about the Coliseum and and all its various and all the various threads of the story, you know that I tried to braid into to a singular tapestry. New Haven has a very lively and vibrant um, cultural scene. You know whether it be visual arts, whether it be music, theater. There, there's a lot going on any given night in New Haven, and. It's one of the things that makes it such a pleasure to live here, but also one of the goals of this show is to talk with people who make movies, who teach about movies, who do interesting things around movies, and to show other filmmakers and film lovers in New Haven that there is a community of filmmakers here too, a a fragmented one, and I think that one that uh, people should be aware of. Um, I wonder, as a kind of New Haven area, New Haven filmmaker yourself, what are some challenges and benefits of being a filmmaker based in this community and also telling stories about this community? It's a tremendous community. Um, um, you know, here, I mean, you know, you have producers, writers, first like Carol Evans. Uh, you could always call up or send an email to, and Carol, I got an issue. How do you, how do you make this happen? <laughs> you know, or you have a problem in storytelling and the narrative. There are always other filmmakers. You can, Rick Becky Abbott is another one that you could say, uh, How'd you get out of a jam like this? <laughs> you know, or how do you get the funding for this? Or, or, or what do you hear, you know, in the funding circles? You know, what, what's, what are some of the issues? What are people talking about? What do they want to see? And so, you know, there is this, this, this community here that often takes place, not at meetings or at call, but just, you know, through email and phone calls and stuff. And I, I think it's, I, I think New Haven's got one of the deepest pools of talent 
uh, you know, of any city of its size, you know, in this area, a documentary. You know, if there is some some way to central, you know, come up with, you know, some sort of funding mechanism that would allow the great artists to make their work. Because um, although you have equipment's less expensive than ever before, editing is less expensive than ever before, to make a quality show, you still have to put some money on the screen. It's just, just the nature of the thing. Um, you let some of these folks be themselves and let them create their work. You know, I, I think there'd be a, like this tremendous explosion of, of, uh, of art and of personalities. And that's the kind of thing that makes a city a city. You know, it's the kind of thing where you can get together and watch something together and comment on it, stuff you know. And you run into people at the various coffee shops in Orange Street. Hey, what are you working on? What are you doing? Eh, that's what makes a city a city. That's what makes it, um, you know, worthwhile, um, you know, to get up and go out and go talk to people and meet people and just, you know, just luxuriate in the sensibilities of people who are trying to make stuff happen. And that's what a city represents. This is just New Haven is a 125,000 people trying to make stuff happen. You know, and in the arts, there's a significant portion of that that are making it happen. And I'm very blessed to live in this town um, and to know some of these people and to learn from them. I'm an old, an old timer now. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, but I'm still learning. I'm still looking at art. I'm still trying to get better. Still trying to find that story that'll make a difference in the lives of people. What's on the horizon for you when it comes to filmmaking or teaching about movies? What, what is what's in your life right now? around movies oh, right now i'm just i'm finishing a piece on on uh it's a, sh- it's a small piece short piece uh, just on a small town ski jump um uh, in connecticut i was i just i wanted to test some some footage and test some technologies drones and stuff <laughs> you know so well you just can't go out and do it you i, I don't want to i want to make a show but i want to use that show as my a good solid story very interesting story about interesting people kind of tucked away in north you know northwestern connecticut uh connecticut there um, you know, with a ski jump, which seems really odd. So it's not not in New Haven, but you know, you use shows like that to constantly try to perfect uh, your approaches to filmmaking. So uh, if another you know another film comes along, another idea comes along, I'll have another tool um, to use to tell the story better. Um, you know, so that that's I mean, it is a technologically a sophisticated task. You know, you have to use what's you know, it's not just putting a camera up. You know, you have to use the right filters. Lighting, lenses, micro microphones and stuff, drones, helicopters um, to make this, the film pop, to make it come alive. So I'm always on a lookout for stuff like that. And, but teaching, you know, I teach a documentary course at Quinnipiac University. Um, and I'm just, you know, pleased to see the reaction of students as I show them some of the stuff that's you know, being produced around the world. And, and they are stunned that so much good stuff is out there. And that now that they've become, now that they've become fans of this stuff, um, they will learn from it. You know, and they will you know, tell the story uh, of people in communities uh, whose stories aren't told presently. And I'm very happy to, to play a very tiny role in at least, you know, grabbing their attention long enough to have them watch some good, good work. Well, Rich, I'm so appreciative of you coming by and talking about this movie and your work today. Thank you Thank so you. much for coming to the studio. Uh, my last question for you is if people want to learn more about either Last Days at the Coliseum or anything else that you do related to movies, can you point them towards... A Facebook page, a website? Yeah, you go, uh, Facebook, you know, you know, Last Days of the Coliseum has a page. You'll find stuff about me there. Uh, if they want to get Last Days of the Coliseum, I believe Best Video in Hamden still has it. Um, That's uh, where I rented it from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so and we want to make sure uh, that all the libraries in the area have a copy. If you don't have a copy and you're a librarian and want one, you know, send me an email at Quinnipiac, and I'll be happy to, to donate one to your library. 
Uh, that's what's it's, it's public history, and and the more people who uh, who watch it will will have a better appreciation of history and maybe be inspired to to do something um, in their own communities about things that matter, but most importantly about people that matter. Well, Rich Hanley is an associate professor of journalism at Quinnipiac University, and he's the writer director of a number of movies about Connecticut history. But for the purposes of this show, Last Days of the Coliseum. Rich, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Tom. And you can find this episode and all other episodes of Deep Focus, including links that, uh, to stuff that we talked about during the show, on deepfocusradio.com.